Hey everyone, my name's Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today's guest is Dr. Adar Cohen. In our conversation, Adar and I talk about difficult conversations, what they are, common mistakes we all fall into, and some practical ways we can all get better at having these important conversations in our life. Adar Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So a lot of little kids will tell you when they grow up, they want to be things like astronauts or doctors, basketball players. But so far, and this may be just I'm not hanging out with the right little kids, but I haven't met any little kids who tell me they want to grow up and become professional mediators. So did you always know that you wanted to be a mediator? And if not, how did you become interested in this line of work? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, You know, interestingly, I think it does go back to childhood, uh, like a lot of things. Um, I don't know that I knew that I wanted to be a mediator back then, but I did attend a birthday party at around the age of seven where everyone got a beautiful slice of cake, but me. Mm-hmm. And I think that had a big impact on me. Um, the way, the way I can explain that is that, um, one side of my family is Iranian. Um, and, uh, a lot of people with, with Persian heritage know right away, um, what, what happened to me. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you for you and your listeners that it, it had to do with something called tarof. Have you heard of tarof before? I have not. You want to try, you want to try saying it? Tarof. 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 Perfect. It's first try. Tarof in, in Farsi is this elaborate system of etiquette and of gesture and counter gesture. So if someone offers you something to eat or drink, you're a guest in their home, first you have to vigorously um, thank them, but re- but refuse and mm. refuse on the grounds of inconveniencing them. And then on the grounds of having eaten earlier and then, you know, just back and forth. And the host has to offer seven, eight, nine times. And only then is it polite for you to accept with a lot of gratitude and really dramatic um, fanfare to accept like the almonds or the glass of tea. That's tarof. So, I grew up with tarof in the house and with, when family visited, always this elaborate back and forth. So at my friend's, American friend's birthday party, when the mom is slicing the birthday cake and is handing cake around the table one after another, here you go, Luke. Thank you. Here you go, Ray. Thanks. Here you go, Adar. No, no, no. I couldn't possibly. You know, I put uh-huh. my, I, my hands up. She says, okay, here you are, Molly. Back in. It's like, oh, wait, no. I'm looking around like, what's wrong with this woman? What happened? Where's my cake? She didn't offer. So that was, I think, the beginning of my education in the complexities that culture and context present to communication. And um, so I think as a kid, my family and home experience um, presented some interesting questions for me that I kept trying to answer, I think, into the early part of my career where I was working as a mediator in places like Belfast uh, Northern Ireland, helping Protestants and Catholics to find new ways to live together after a decades-long conflict, or on the south side of Chicago, trying to help gang leaders and police officers c- 
collaborate to reduce violence. It was, I think, I think I didn't want to be a mediator as a kid, but I had experiences that um, caused me to be curious about some of the uh, dimensions of mediation. Um, yeah. yeah. So when did you, because I don't, I don't know at what age I would have actually known what a mediator was. Like when, when did that come on your radar as a possible kind of career opportunity? Was it, you know, in high school, college, like when did that sort of happen I, where you thought, Hey, I could actually turn this into a profession. Yeah. I think it was, it wasn't until college, Okay, but it did start to crystallize then. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're, we're going to kind of dive into the details of um, how to have more effective conversations, um, especially around sort of difficult topics, which is something you obviously specialize in. But for just a little bit more context on this topic of mediation and being a mediator, what what is a day in the life of a mediator? Like what what does being a mediator actually look like? Mm. Could you, you kind of like uh, illustrate that for us, I guess? Sure. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a certain kind of mediator. I I think of myself as like a mediator at large, um, a generalist. I'm not specializing in a, a lot of people make great use of um, divorce mediation, for example, and a, a divorce mediation practitioner is is helping people to um, to do a divorce well, and um, and they do a lot of that. And I don't actually do any divorce mediation. Um, I'm, I guess, right now uh, in the in these months of of the pandemic um doing a lot of work with families the uh everyone is experiencing some kind of strain um from the conditions of the covid pandemic um so i'm working more than ever before with families and it isn't it isn't divorce mediation and it isn't family therapy but it's um it's me bringing mediation skills forward in a way that creates a structured and supported conversation so that um, couples, um, parents with their children, and, and also whole families can have really important conversations in ways that respect how important they are. And obviously people do this every day, but I mean, having brave conversations, listening well, working through things um, without a mediator, but it can help a lot to have someone who's guiding and supporting that process. Um, so for me right now as a mediator, it's a lot of work with families and I'm also working with organizations who are um, it, particularly right now trying to have bigger conversations about equity and belonging. And I'm helping them to design and support uh, those conversations. Uh, the, the, um, the presidential campaign um, brought an opportunity for me to help um, a really great um, organization called Bully Pulpit Interactive, um, the terrific firm that led the Biden campaign's mobilization effort. They did everything for them online and rapid response work. Um, there, I'm having, I'm uh, helping people to have the best conversations they can where, when the stakes are really high and there's a lot of stress and work is really fast. Um, and communication for them is, is everything to whether they're successful or not. Um, so really I'm, I'm, I'm working as a mediator and I'm also working as someone who helps people to have conversations in ways that would prevent them from needing a mediator later on. 
Yeah, right. So you're, you're both kind of, it sounds like you're facilitating a, a problem that people come to you with, but then also kind of providing ongoing kind of skills or tools for um, dealing with those sorts of situations in the future. Um, That's right. On So sort of on that topic, what just off the top of your head, like what are some of the most common types of difficult conversations that people come to you for help kind of navigating? Like what, you know, I don't know, just bullet pointed out, like what are the few, a few really common ones? Yeah. Um, well, right now the most common is, is um, families dealing with the holidays uh, and figuring out how to approach the holidays. That's a really big one um, uh, currently. Um, but I'd say moving down the bullet list, um, it, a, a lot of people in their work are struggling with um, the, the difficulties of, um, of meetings and what, and in particular, a COVID era meeting feels like and how much it can accomplish. So the endlessness of Zoom meetings and I'm hearing a lot of people who are struggling with those um, uh, where people aren't necessarily speaking to the, the person they want or need to speak to, but are speaking in, in the abstract to the whole group. Um, and it's, and the, uh, so I think in the last in the last nine or so months, um, people are struggling a lot with just having meetings and not really having conversations anymore. Um, so th- th- that's another one um, that's pretty common right now. That's interesting. I, I've heard a lot from my own clients about, um, you know, a lot of people have been surprised that during the pandemic, grief is actually a more common emotion for a lot of people than, than maybe anxiety or even frustration, um, as they might have expected. And one of the things I'm hearing a lot is that, that people are kind of grieving over or really missing is the opportunity to have um, kind of rich, meaningful conversations, whether it's with coworkers or family or yeah. friends that they can't see as much anymore. So I like that. That's an interesting distinction between kind of conversations and meet. you can have a meeting, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be having a good, productive conversation. Um, I like that. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So, so and, and we're, we're going to kind of really get into the details of conversation, but it, we can't really talk about uh, difficult conversations without um, sort of the elephant in the room here is the idea of conflict, which is often what leads to difficult conversations one way or the other. Mm. And, you know, I think it's a, it's kind of a truism that people hate conflict, right? And we'll do just about anything to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. um, in fact, in, in a recent essay um, you did on difficult conversations, you said, we steer around conflict as prodigiously as we create it. Man, like, first of all, such a great line. You need to be doing more writing. <laughs> um, but I, I'm curious, like, what's your theory for this? Like, why, why are we so afraid of conflict? I, don't, I can't tell if that's a dumb question or, or a really insightful one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Let me see if I can speak to this. It, it's, it is, Nick, totally remarkable to me, the lengths that we go to to avoid conflict. And I include myself here. I'm, I'm right there with a lot of people on this planet. Um, we want to avoid feeling uncomfortable and we also want to avoid seeing others uncomfortable. So if a moment is tense, we there's a tendency to flee the scene and backpedal. You know, an awkward exchange terrifies people. And I think all of that is all of that's really real. Um, but it also feels like it's deeper than that. It isn't just about awkwardness. I I wonder if it has to do with a fear of losing control. Um or a fear of making things worse, which I guess is related to that. I think at a surface level or immediately, 
we feel that awkwardness and we recoil. But conflict avoidance in our culture is so strong that it seems like there's something more powerful steering us. And maybe it's that we think of conflict as bad and as only bad. But in fact, from my experience, um, and I have all, I have this experience as a mediator, someone who deals with conflict every day, and I still avoid conflict in my own life. So <laughs> take this with a grain of salt. But I, uh, f- from where I sit as a mediator, conflict is not inherently bad. It offers us lots of new information about how we could work with others more effectively, um, where we might be able to improve our relationships and all kinds of relationships. And also conflict gives us information about how we could grow as individuals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as a mediator, I see a lot that avoiding conflict makes it worse and is usually ends up being worse than actually encountering it. Because as, as you alluded to, uh, conflict avoidance often creates new conflict because what's simmering there under the surface is not going away. Um, it's like having a pot on the stove that's boiling over and, you know, walking into the kitchen and seeing that and deciding, well, you know what, I'm just going to go to the other room for a minute and I'll see, we'll see what that does. Or putting a lid on it um, also doesn't really help. Um, so I think it really, the question really becomes, how do we approach conflict? Are we clenched about it? Are we, are we afraid of it? Are we avoiding it? Or can we become more curious? Um, are we looking for opportunities to grow or are we afraid of the change that could come with encountering conflict? Um, yeah, it's, it's funny you bring up that metaphor of the, the pot um, on the stove bubbling over. Cause I, you know, my work with, with clients in therapy, I, I talk a lot obviously with uh, about people's kind of emotional pain and this idea of pain, I think it, it's sort of analogous in that it, most people think of pain as a bad thing um, because it's so unpleasant and right. aversive feeling. But one of my my favorite little trick questions is, um, you know, when, when you when you touch a hot stove, when you touch a hot pan on a stove and you feel pain in your finger, is the pain bad? And right. my <laughs> kind of cheeky answer is that, well technically know that the pain is actually a really good thing. The pain is just information telling your brain to quickly move your hand so that you avoid the truly dangerous thing, which is, you know, third degree burns on your <laughs> tissue damage on your hand. Right. So it's, it's really easy. And, and like you said, I, I'm, I'm uh, guilty of this just as much as the next person, but it's, it's very understandable and easy to conflate something feeling bad, whether it's pain or conflict with something being bad. Um, and I just, I, th- I think that's such a, I, I, it was, it was interesting to me to hear you bring that up, that distinction up in the, co- in the context of conflict, because that's not something I'd really ever thought a whole lot about, but it, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense. Um, mm-hmm. So w- when you, when you talk to people about conflict um, and resolving conflict, y- you've said there are kind of three um, main outcomes that you are often trying to achieve with people, a solution, a plan or understanding. Can you kind of walk us through what those are and why those are important when it comes to dealing with conflict and sort of difficult conversations in a helpful way? I, you know, here's a way that I've, this is a shorthand that I use that feels helpful and feels like it tracks pretty well um, with the options in front of us when we're having, when we have a difficult conversation to have, of course, it's not complete and everyone, um, every situation is unique, but yeah, those three the three main outcomes that we can hope for are a solution, a plan, or an understanding. And the solution is 
it, this is like the the single grand bargain. This is like the the resounding win, um, where the conflict is gone and it's just it's just blue skies and green pastures ahead. And it's tempting. People are if they're going to gear up to have a difficult conversation, you sort of want the big win out of it because it's uncomfortable. Um, and so there's a big, there's a temptation to go for that grand solution, but it's, it's fairly unrealistic to reach that in, in the course of one or a few conversations. Um, and when you, when you swing for the fences, um, if a solution is like a home run swing, um, your, your baseball fans will know that that's a slightly lower probability hit. Um, uh, and so you, you risk when you go for, uh, the big solution. The second positive outcome is to is to look for a plan, which is one way of understanding that is it's like sort of a map or a framework toward the, the big solution. Um, and that's, you know, that's can be something to aim for. It's it is a little bit ambitious to try and uh, to reach a plan without a third party, without um, support. But it can happen. Uh, it's not quite as unrealistic as the solution. And it's also not quite as satisfying. Um, and then the third positive outcome is to reach an understanding or to increase understanding. And this is uh, this is all about listening and establishing new awareness of what the other person or person's experience is or are. Um, it lays a foundation for finding a plan and even for finding a solution, but it's not risky and it's totally realistic and achievable. It just takes a great deal of patient and disciplined and curious listening. Um, so I advise people to, um, to look, to try for an understanding first. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It makes me think of a, uh, one of the early guests I had on this podcast is a, a, a good friend named Sam Hamburg, who's a, he's a long time, uh, he's a psychologist, but he specializes in couples counseling. And he has this great line that I, <laughs> I love, which is that, you know, everyone goes into couples counseling wanting communication skills. And, and he likes, again, somewhat cheekily to, to respond that there are no communication problems. There are only understanding problems and uh -huh. with the idea that the vast majority of the time anyway, it's not really a deficit in your technical communication skills. It's that we don't really understand each other kind of on a, on a, on a deep enough level or, or our, our understanding is somehow kind of incomplete. Um, so I wonder, could you talk a little bit more about that understanding level? Like what, what does that look? Cause I think in a lot of conversations, and maybe this is a big part of the problem. Like when I, when I'm in a, in a difficult conversation with my wife, for example, I often think that I understand her. Um, but it, it only occurs to me after the fact, maybe that, Hmm, maybe I didn't actually quite understand. Her. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that. Like what, what does that mean exactly to, to go deeper on really understanding the, the other person in the conversation. Yeah, it has to do with what we have to do is something that's very difficult for human beings to do. And that is to suspend our own emotions and our own responses to what we're hearing and to, to not deny or reject them, but just to kind of hold them off to the side and really focus on listening to what a person is telling us and, and to continually find ways to curiously and earnestly ask them to describe their experience some more. And it's about 
reaching increasing understanding is about uh, is about doing that when it's most uncomfortable for you because <laughs> that's usually the time when it's most needed <laughs> uh, so asking again you know what is this like for you well, how are you feeling about this right now could you say a little bit more using open-ended questions to stay curious and to just listen uh, oftentimes the more the more we do that, the more the kind of technical fixes that we have to make that we thought we needed to make in order to resolve the conflict in the background, they're actually melting away the more we listen. So it can feel like I'm listening to this person forever and they're going in circles and they're going to say this thing. And now they're going to say this thing again now. But in fact, if you can listen uh, for longer and longer than, you know, for, for more than is comfortable, um, you're doing tremendous amount of good for the relationship and for the end against the conflict. Um, but it's just about staying curious and staying with that and finding ways. There's different ways to do it. So I, there's two, two ways that I help people to try and stay with it. Um, the first is for people who are like naturally generous. Uh, and I, I tell them to just think there is no bigger gift that, that, that you could be giving to this person right now than to continue listening to them in this curious and earnest way. Um, and for people who, who don't really, um, who don't really connect with that right away, um, I, there's a different way to, to think. And, and that is to say, there's, this is, there's no better investment you could be making in you being heard later on and understood later on than listening right now. So every minute that you keep listening is an investment in, in your own payout at the end. Um, if, if, and, and that's, I don't, I don't fault people for wanting to um, look after their own self-interest. These are hard conversations. And if we're just finding a way to stay focused and keep listening, I don't really mind how people get there as long as they can, um, as long as they can get there. Yeah. So, okay. So th this naturally brings us to the topic of listening. Um, and, and I think we've all heard that it's important to be a good listener, right? It's, it's almost a, again, it's kind of a truism or a cliche. Um, especially when it comes to having difficult conversations. You know, I know I need to be, be a better listener is something I hear all the time. But, you know, it's funny. Like, what the hell does that actually mean? <laughs> I think it's one of those things that in the abstract sounds wonderful. Um, but there's a lot of specificity lacking for people. I think people lack kind of tangible, like, well, what what, is, what am I actually supposed to be doing or maybe not doing um, mm -hmm. to, in order to be a good listener? So how do you... Can you kind of break that down for us? Like, what what are kind of the elements or the, the specific parts of good listening in, in your experience? Yeah. I think listening when it... I think one of the things to think about is that when it gets really hard to, to be listening, um, that's a cue that this is showtime. Like this is the most important moment to be listening. So, and I have, some of my clients have found that helpful is like, that's your cue <laughs> when you yeah. really, when you really want to stop listening, when you don't want to hear it, that aversion is your signal that it's showtime. Like your number just got called, take off your warm ups. You're off the bench. You're in now. It, this is the time for you to shine. Um, and yeah, back to our point of pain being seeing yeah, pain as a messenger, right. not as something to be avoided. Right, right. There's there's no more productive and efficient an activity in a difficult conversation than listening. This is what I tell people who are feeling impatient, who don't who feel like they don't have it in them, they they can't listen more. It's like if you want to get through this, the most efficient way 
to use your time. Um, and the most productive thing that you can do is to listen. Um, and to do it in a way that's, uh, like even, even to use the word aggressively listen. Um, to be looking for the opportunity to ask a follow up question that's open ended, not that's litigious or that's poking and trying to find a hole in the argument, uh, but that is, that is looking to open the door even a little bit wider for the person you're talking to, to describe their experience further. Um, there's no more productive activity. It's just as we feel like, yeah, go ahead. No, I, just, just as, just as I need to be heard. And I'm feeling that acutely that I am misunderstood and I really want this person to hear me. My counterpart is feeling that too. And we could go for a long time in this pattern of not being able to really drop in and listen to each other because we need that. And what we're basically doing is, you know, we're both at the counter staring at an orange and we've got a knife and we've cut it in half, but we just can't decide who's going to pick it up first. What we can do is we can, we could just sort of, cut to the chase and listen first and know that if you go first and you go through the uncomfortable challenge of listening when you'd really rather not, what you get is that, you know, on the other side of that, you're going to be listened to by someone who was just listened to. So they're going to be in a much better place to really hear and absorb what you have to say. Um, so that's an upside of listening first. You, you mentioned in there the idea of asking open-ended questions. Um, can you talk a little bit about what an open-ended question is exactly? Maybe some examples and, and why those are particularly helpful. Yeah, well, they're they're helpful because they ask for, they ask people they invite people to describe their experience. And when we are um, so, they're helpful to both parties. An open-ended question says, "What what does it feel like for you when this happens?" Or um, can you say more about what your experience was like with this? Um, it's they're they're not a yes or no question. Um, and it's certainly not a, don't you think that you ought to do such and such differently? Um, certainly not anything like that. It's a question that invites people to come forward and tell more of their story. And what's, and the way that that benefits both parties is that obviously the person who's being asked is being invited to describe their experience, which means that they're not, um, being set up to litigate or blame uh, or stumble around in the kind of who did what of the conflict. They're they're being invited to describe what's on their heart or what's on their mind. Um, and people need that deeply when they're in conflict or when the relationship is strained. And for the person who's asking, what they get is um, they they get the benefit of being able to hear someone describe their experience rather than come after them or... Um, you know, challenge them or relitigate a, you know, a, a, an an incident. Um, so, open-ended questions are good for everyone in in these conversations. Yeah, yeah. And in my experience, yeah, that's that's really is how you get to those. If there's one thing that gets you to those deeper levels of really understanding each other better, it's those open-ended questions because you, you know, so I, I think in a lot of ways, someone can't feel comfortable getting to the really hard stuff, the really vulnerable stuff if they feel like they're in an inquisition, even if that's not your intention to be, you know, cross-examining them. Um, right. A lot of like specific uh, closed-ended questions can feel very um, persecutu persecutory almost. Um, yeah. And that just yeah. when we're kind of defensive, it's hard to get to that 
the really kind of meaty stuff down low. So I, yeah, I love that bit about, um, about open-ended questions. Um, similarly, what is a, what's a gem statement and why are they so uh, important when it comes to resolving conflict and having difficult conversations? Yeah. Well, let's, um, let me, let me, let me try to explain it to you by doing a little experiment. Are you, are you game to try yeah, something? Let's do it. Okay. Um, okay. And, and listeners of Nick's awesome podcast, you can, you can try this too. Um, all right, Nick, you ready? Let's do it. You can, you can close your eyes if you want, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's a podcast. Um, think of a really tough conversation, either one that you need to have that you know you've been avoiding or that is probably brewing, or if you don't have one available, think of one from a while ago, from some point in your life. Just think of this tough conversation. And I'm not going to ask you to say anything about it. But if you think about that person who you either need to talk to or needed to talk to, imagine for, for a moment that you just finished having the best possible conversation with them. You were heard fully. Like they listened to everything you had to say and they addressed it all really, really well. If, if you were interested in an apology, if an apology was appropriate, you got a really, like a great apology. And you feel like you have good reason to be confident in the future of the relationship. You feel a lot of trust toward this person now, totally relieved that you've had this conversation. Okay. Are you there? Got it. What would you say to the person in this moment? What is fundamentally true about your relationship and what this person means to you that you would say in this moment? What's underneath the conflict? If the anger and uncertainty and tension are gone, this is just an exercise, but if they're gone, what's the truest thing that you'd want to say to this person? So that statement, that's your gem statement. And ideal the the way that the the way that I started working with gem statements is that I just started noticing in my mediation work that oftentimes like an hour or two hours or many hours in suddenly one of the parties would unearth a gem like this and just say something incredible to the other person. Um, and it was just that it was like something that was beneath it all, something fundamentally true that was validating, affirming that, you know, um, and that, and the other person, like when, when they hear something like this, it's, it's nearly impossible to keep kind of, to keep going back and forth. Like this drops everything down many, many levels. And you can only respond with an earnest, authentic, you know, appreciation and oftentimes a, 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 a reciprocal statement. And that, that completely changes the trajectory of the conversation. So for example, a gem statement I heard recently was, um, uh, I know you want the best for our kids' school. These were um, uh, two different families with, with kids attending the same school. Uh, I know you want the best for our kids' school, and that means a lot to me. And you could tell, you can always tell it's a gem statement when you would really prefer to add a grievance to the end of it. <laughs> You'd really rather offer a qualifier or a, a kind of rider. So it would sound like, I know you want the best for our kids' school, and that means a lot to me, but the way you're going about it is making everyone around you, you crazy and you're causing a lot of problems, like the time when you made that, sent that email before. You know, it, it just, the rest spills out. I'm not advocating that people not air their grievances. There's certainly a part for that in the conversation, but 
the gem should stand alone because then we actually get all of the benefit of saying it. Um, and I encourage people to exchange gem statements now at the beginning of conversations. And I give them the homework of, of discovering what that gem statement is. And it's, it's amazing the time and money that, <laughs> that it, that it saves people to, to develop, to find this at the, at the front end. And it doesn't mean that, that we come in, we sit down 10 minutes later, the whole thing is done, but we do, um, we do eliminate a lot of toil by, um, by, by trying to exchange gem statements. Yeah. So if I, if I kind of hear you correctly, one of the ways I would kind of translate this into my own like kind of framework for how I think about things is that gem statements are incredibly validating and they're validating of the, the person and the relationship, the core of the person in the relationship, um, despite the particulars of this conflict, this one conflict. So in a way, what they're saying is you are and we are much more than this particular conflict, as big as this conflict is. Yes. And that, when someone really believes that you believe that, it's incredibly disarming, maybe, comforting, yeah. uh, confidence instilling. What, what do you think about that? Is that... Is that fair yeah no i think i think absolutely it's validating it builds confidence it it calms people it also um oftentimes is it's just the the right nudge that people need to kind of get out of that um a kind of tight um clammed up uh conflict mode and to to feel and experience together the other emotions that they have shared so and you know, how powerful, like a lot of times the, the word love is, appears in the gem statement and to mm -hmm. start a hard conversation by referencing either a, the love that people have for each other or the appreciation that people have for each other. I mean, it just, it just completely changes the, the air in the room um, because of, yeah, like you say, that validation, um, it's incredibly disarming and it reminds people of what they're there to protect. So let, let's kind of dive, let, let's dive into, okay, so you just had us kind of walk through an exercise of imagining a, a, a difficult conversation or, or kind of conflictual situation. So let's say people have a, they thought of a, an upcoming conversation that they know they need to have or should have. So I, I guess my general, well, let me start with this. You have, um, you have this great line in, in this essay you did on on this topic and you said, when we're facing a tough conversation, it's not really the mediator you need. It's the conditions we're good at creating and maintaining. So I love this idea of the, the mediator as sort of like the gardener who kind of creates the, the appropriate sort of conditions for the, the, the plants and the flowers to kind of blossom on their own. So with that idea of kind of creating optimal conditions for a difficult conversation, like what are some things you recommend to people when it comes to preparing in advance for a difficult conversation? Mm. Yeah, I think ideally the conversation happens in a calm moment, um, not during an eruption um, or because the circumstances forced the conversation to happen. And I know how I know that is unrealistic because life is happening every day. But um, this is uh, this actually points back to another reason not to avoid or delay having a big conversation because when we do that, eventually that pot boils over and it doesn't always choose like 
a calm, perfect, ideal moment to have a difficult conversation. It boils over when it boils over. And then we're having the conversation in less than ideal circumstances. We're not as prepared. Um, so I think choosing, choosing a calm moment, and that's something that a mediator does. They schedule, they schedule it. Um, that, what that does is it by putting it on people's calendar, they know it's coming. Um, they can do whatever they might need to do to be prepared and, and as ready as they can be for it. Um, I, you know, I think it's really helpful to be doing something else, um, while having these kinds of conversations. Um, so not just sitting either on a zoom or in, in the living room, um, and just facing each other and trying to have the conversation again. Um, so these days I'm encouraging a lot of people and I'm, and I'm, and I'm doing this alongside them is to take a, to take a walk together. And if they're not, um, if they're not in the same pod or bubble to take a walk using the phone, um, and to both be walking and talking on the phone together, um, is a really helpful thing. Um, but you know, I've had my clients have really big conversations while baking together, uh, preparing holiday greeting cards. Um, I've sat, you know, groups who work together in, in a, in the same company, um, to paint together and to talk over that shared activity. Um, because when there's a shared activity or a shared object of focus, that isn't the big conversation, you have another avenue to direct your energy. If the listening is really hard, for example. Um, or if you just, um, you know, it's a, it's like a safe, uh, it's like a grounded outlet. <laughs> um, so I think having a, having an activity, um, choosing a calm moment, these are, these things are help to create the, create good conditions. Um, talking to someone else as you prepare to have the conversation, either an uninvolved friend or your therapist or a mediator, um, who might be willing to advise you in advance of your conversation to answer. You can answer some questions in advance. Um, and, and I think this is something that I ask people to think about before I, I serve as their mediator. And there are four pretty straightforward questions that you can answer that help you to create good conditions. And it's what write down the biggest emotion that you're feeling toward the person you need to have the conversation with. So your biggest emotion. The second is what's the biggest emotion you think they're feeling. The third is the gem statement, if you can come up with it. And the fourth one is just to really as high level as you can, what's the hope you have for the conversation? Answering those four questions does a lot to create the conditions that a mediator creates because it, it primes a person to be thinking about the goal, thinking about the outcome, um, developing a gem statement that would be validating and disarming, and then you know processing their own emotion and also thinking empathetically about what the other person's emotion might be. Yeah, those are great. I love it. They're so concrete and specific. <laughs> I think it's really helpful um, in, in, in an area that's so often full of kind of vague, um, generic advice. I think stuff like that is, is super helpful to people. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing that, that can't be uh, underestimated, Nick, is not to go, not to go for too long. Um, you're, we can't always finish the, a big conversation in one go. And sometimes when we try to, we start to reach diminishing returns and blood sugar gets involved and fatigue gets involved and now no one's at their best anymore. And you're not at your best when like it, 
that the really, really tough part of the conversation is around the corner. So it's, to, it's really, it's good to pause and say, this was really great. We should really continue this. Let's come at it again when we're both fresh. Yeah, that's great advice. So one of the things in my both personal and professional experience that makes difficult conversations especially hard is the phenomenon of defensiveness. I think this is one of those things that we all kind of everybody knows what defensiveness, they at least know what it feels like. It's, it's a, kind of a hard thing to define actually. Um, but man, like nothing seems to derail conversations faster than, than defensiveness. So how do you, um, how do you recommend people both sort of think about and handle defensiveness, both the, you know, the, their own and other people's. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is, this is one of the reasons that I, I advise people to seek understanding rather than a full blown solution. Because if you're looking for understanding, you're listening. And the more someone feels like they're being listened to and being heard, the less defensive they'll feel. If, if people feel like, you're looking for your way to kind of win the conflict. People tend to grip a little bit more and then become more defensive. So listening is a, is an important feature here. I think also choosing our grievances wisely, um, can reduce defensiveness. So less, less offensiveness, <laughs> less offense leads to less defense. Um, if it, if, if it wouldn't make your say like top two or three grievances list, it is off limits for the conversation. Don't include it because during a tense or uh, conversation, emotionally draining conversation, people aren't, are not at their best in receiving criticism or responding to others' grievances. They're probably near their worst in that moment because everything is elevated and, and they're already experiencing so much um, they're all making such an effort. So we should choose the grievances we want to raise really carefully more than one or two. And you're going to start to undermine. You you won't, you won't even have those one or two heard or met. Um, And as far as managing our own defensiveness, I'd say, I think here too, it's not, it's about not going on the offense so much. So in tough conversations, we're not just facing off against someone else. We're also confronting ourselves and if you and I, Nick, are trying to sort something out that's created friction for us, and internally, I'm beating up on myself about maybe not being assertive enough or not setting a better boundary with you earlier on or whatever else I might be going on the offense about with myself, I'm going to have a lot less bandwidth to hear you, and I'll be quicker to be defensive with you because my capacity is nearly consumed with fending off my own offense, my own critiques or negative uh, self-talk. So becoming aware of how we're talking to ourselves during a difficult conversation is another dimension here that we don't, that doesn't, we don't pay enough attention to. And so not going on the offense against ourselves is, is also a way to curb our defensiveness, just as not going on the offense against you, Nick, is a way for me to reduce your impulse to be defensive. Man, mic drop. I feel like I should just drop the mic right there. That, that's so good. Um, but I'm not going to because I've got a couple more questions for you. I, I think that was, that is excellent advice. That the, I think the degree to which we are um, playing offense against ourselves is just so underappreciated and, and causes so many um, difficulties unnecessarily. And getting better at, at recognizing that and being a little more gentle with ourselves is is so important. Um, so th- this next question, it's a little out of, out of left field, but 
one of the hardest lessons I learned as a therapist in training was how to shut up and embrace silence in therapy conversations. So I'm wondering, um, given that there's a lot of similarities, I think, between um, psychotherapy and mediation, how do you think about the role of silence in your work as a mediator and just, I guess, having difficult conversations generally? That was like three seconds. And it felt a lot longer to me. I don't know about you. How, did, I, did that feel okay. like a lot? I, I was like scanning my recording app to see like, oh my God, did I lose him? What happened? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. But it, but I couldn't help it. I mean, it, it, we are, uh, this is a the conflict avoidance is a phenomenon I'm fascinated with and that I in, encounter a lot in my work. And so is our aversion to silence. Um, there's we panic um and it's it's i i was literally panicking at our, my I'm my sorry, if you Nick, could feel so the sweat sorry. on my palms right now like my <laughs> microphone is gross i'm just saying <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. such a good in vivo but, uh experiment though that was it was perfect <laughs> i in the few it, it it can take a few and we know here's the thing we panic and i do too nick you know in my teaching when i speak um, when I'm mediating, silence is very uncomfortable for me. But we also know from being in conversations that it can take a few seconds for us to orient ourselves and respond intelligently and, and presently. People just need time, but there's a discrepancy with how much time we know we need and how much time we're willing to accommodate when the silence is actually around us. Um, so in in my mediation work, I say explicitly, and I also try to demonstrate that silence is okay. And, and between you and me, it's more than okay. It's actually really powerful and can be really productive, especially in difficult conversations. Silence is, um, it's essential for gathering ourselves. Um, more than in regular conversation, we need to gather ourselves to take a moment. We need to stay focused. We need to process what we're hearing. Um, and we need to make decisions about what we're, how we want to respond. Um, so it happens a lot that, that people are, um, exhibiting discomfort and, and sometimes, um, you know, blurting out something that they wish they hadn't just so that they don't have to listen to another half a second of silence. Um, and that's, you know, oftentimes that's okay. It's something benign or it's, it's an attempt at humor or, you know, but a lot of times the really good breakthroughs that I see in big conversations, they come out of a short period of silence that feels a lot longer, but really it's three seconds, four seconds feels like an eternity. <laughs> um, but when we're rushing to fill every silence and me some mediators do this uh, and people in conversations do this, when we're rushing to fill the silence because it makes us feel uncomfortable, we're actually squandering a really valuable resource. We there's a tendency to think of good communication as saying stuff and hearing and being heard, and certainly that's true. But silence catapults conversations forward, and we don't appreciate that enough. I think um, they it, it gives us the moment we need to decide to orient before we try to persuade or to absorb something and be be persuaded. Silence is are the moments in a conversation where 
um, actually where, where things actually happen. So if we're constantly trying to interrupt that or shortcut that, we're, we're interrupting and shortcutting our progress in the conversation. Yeah. So this is so, so great. I, so I have two thoughts that kind of pop into my head when you we say that. The first is going back to that kind of gardening metaphor that we talked about before, where, you know, the vast majority of a healthy garden, you're not actually in the dirt doing stuff, right? You spend a little, you spend an hour a day sort of watering and, you know, tending to the garden. But the vast majority of the time of the, the garden kind of growing and flourishing is when you're not being particularly active. Um, hmm. And then the, the other thought I have too, that it comes up a lot in, in therapy and in, in my work is I, I like to tell people, um, you know, just because it's your first thought doesn't mean it's your best thought. Um, so when someone's, you know, there's some kind of triggering or distressing situation, their first thought is, uh, you know, it's, it's catastrophizing. They're going right to the worst case scenario and they're feeling a lot of anxiety about that. If we don't, a lot of times that happens because we don't give our mind enough time to have a few more thoughts the the second or third of which might be a whole lot more accurate and helpful than that first kind of gut reaction thought. Um, and I think, you know, I noticed that about my own mind. Like when I give myself the space to have a lot of different thoughts, um, usually the first one is not always uh, the best or the most helpful or the most accurate. So I, I would think that comes up a lot. Um, that, that's important for conversations too, right? Like giving both giving yourself space for um, plenty of, of thinking, but also giving other people that kind of grace and space to have, um, to really sort out their thoughts and not feel the pressure to just kind of go with the first thing that crosses their mind. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I miss about, um, uh, mediating in person is the, the array of props that I could use to protect silence. So, you know, refilling people's tea or, needlessly fussing with the, uh, you know, the glasses or, the, or whatever's on the tray as a way of just running interference for people um, so that they can have just a couple more moments of silence to either, you know, to explore that third or fourth thought um, or to spend <clears throat> just another moment processing the one that they just heard uh, because you know, people are really profoundly uncomfortable with silence, but they also profoundly need it. Um, so there are all kinds of uh, tricks that I've explored that are really nice in person. And of course, we, we look for the replacements on Zoom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there are only so many emoji you can you, you can pop up um, in the middle of a, of a Zoom call. <laughs> That's right. So That's right. last question for you. We've talked a lot about how to manage um, our own difficult conversations, but what if we're struggling to facilitate a difficult conversation with someone else? So I'm a manager, say, and I'm trying to help a couple coworkers um, have a more productive conversation about something, or I'm a parent trying to help my um, older kids like have a conversation about something. I know, I know, this is like a, real, this is a we could have a whole other podcast just on this topic on on how to be a good mediator <laughs> for other people. But um, do you have do you have any kind of like high level thoughts or, or kind of practical suggestions for people who find themselves in that situation? Yes, I, I think uh, first of all, a big congratulations and a and a, a hearty salute to to any of your listeners who are thinking about about doing this, um, who see people around them who really need to have a difficult conversation. And if you're even just considering helping them to do it, good for you. 
the world depends on you. You are creating a better future for us all. Um, and, and there are, I, I think there are three big, there are three rules and many, uh, ideas and practices follow from these three. But if you can keep these three things in mind, um, you can do a lot of good. Uh, and the first one is that if, if you're going to convene people and if you're going to try to be that third party who helps them hold together, the conversation and creates the conditions in which they can have it well, you are going to need to be encouraging them to move toward the conflict rather than away from it or around it. Because as we've talked about, people want to avoid conflict. People don't like it. But you, as someone who knows that this could be a worthwhile conversation to have, you know that it's normal and healthy and totally human to have conflict. And without conflict, we don't really learn and grow and change. It's just like feeling the pain when you touch the hot um, pan on the stove, you know, we need this information. It's important information. So if you're bringing people together to talk, be, have an orientation of moving toward the conflict, not in a, not in an uh, aggressive or inflammatory way, but keep moving, asking them to move toward it and, and think about it and share what they're feeling about it. Um, and then the second rule is to just be ready to ask many, many questions ask each of them questions about their experiences. And if you listen really, really well to what they say, they're going to say important things um, because you're there listening. And the better you listen, the more the people involved in the conversation will actually follow your modeling and they'll start to listen to each other. Um, but you can show them the way. Um, and the, uh, of course, the more they start to listen to each other, the more their conflict is going to start to uh, erode and melt away and uh, and then the third is to is to speak less than you um, to pl plan to speak less than you'll uh, than you'll want to. You're gonna you're gonna have this impulse to rush in and rescue people from silence because it feels like that awkwardness or that tension of the silence is going to be destructive and not helpful to the conversation. But resist that urge because those awkward moments, those silences, are actually the fuel for that conversation to move forward well. So you can show them that silence is okay by appearing comfortable with it um, and by look at, by appearing to be very patient in those silences and just to wait um, for what might be next. Um, so moving toward the conflict, not avoiding it, showing them that it's okay to move toward it, asking a lot of questions and giving a lot of space for people to, to do what they need to do. Dar, it's been a pleasure. Um, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, Nick, the pleasure is mine. It's it, what, what a, I'm a fan of your podcast and of your work and your writing. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, if, if anyone wants to learn more about my work, my, my website can be helpful. It's adarcohen.com. Uh, and that's A-D-A-R-C-O-H-E-N.com. I'm also on Twitter. Um, my, my handle there is uh, at Dr. Adar Cohen, uh, D-R-A-D-A-R-C-O-H-E-N. Um, and you can, uh, you can find me in those two places and, if, and people can reach out through my website. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.